When asked the question, what day most changed the course of history, Christina Paxson, president of the prestigious Ivy League school, Brown University, replied with this. The day Johannes Gutenberg finished his wooden printing press in 1440, Western civilization turned in turned onto a path toward more efficient, accessible communication of knowledge. The ensuing democratization of ideas had a profound impact on societies in the second half of the millennium. Of course, uh, for those of you who might be familiar with the history of printing press and all that kind of stuff, the Gutenberg printing press was not the first printing press. In fact, um, in fact, a bunch of Asians who uh, created the first printing press. It was the Chinese at first, and then um, uh, all my Koreans in the house. The Koreans actually had it over 100 years before the metal printing press. Okay, so word up to my Asians and Koreans. We're always trying to be first, probably because our parents were telling us to do that. But anyways, the impact the Gutenberg press made would see its greatest impact, not when it was invented, but actually 80 years later, when a man by the name of William Tyndale would allow really any person with the ability to read, which at this time, when he published the Tyndale version of the New Testament, was about two in every ten people. Okay, I know that isn't really high literacy, but you have to understand that prior to this time, about just a hundred years before, literacy, literacy was hanging around like one to two percent as opposed to 16 to 20 percent. And so more and more people were reading. And when Gutenberg allowed pretty much any person who could read to open up the scriptures for themselves and they could read the gospel and share it with those within their circles of influence, it absolutely changed the world. And one of those passages that would have been included in one of those Tyndale New Testaments would have been a passage we read together last Sunday about this good news, this gospel of Jesus, which says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, I passed on to you what was most important. Don't skip this. Most important. Like if the scriptures says to us, here's what's most important, I think as readers of the Bible, we should go, hey, I should pay attention to what is being said. And so what is most important And what has also been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins. This is the most important thing. Just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 followers at one time. Most of them who are still alive. In other words, if what we're saying isn't true, you can check our references. Though some have died. And then he was seen by James, the brother of Jesus, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I've been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So last week, we began a series with really this simple goal in mind to talk about how Jesus not only changes everything, but how he is still changing everything. And if we're going to be talking about how Jesus changes everything, we have to talk about one of the greatest impacts Jesus makes on any person's life. You see, over the next 30 years after Jesus was crucified and then buried, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the message of the gospel spread like wildfire. 
Like everywhere it would go. And it would make sense because if someone could predict their death and live to tell about it, you were probably going to believe that whatever that person said was true to be true. And so over the next 30 years, this message of the gospel began to spread like wildfire. And thousands of people came to faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. And as we look at over the history of the church, we know that, that the, the, the apostles and, and that the followers of Jesus were so passionate about this message that they went not only from Jerusalem to Judea, but the, uh, Judea to the uttermost parts of the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They began to share this gospel with the whole world. And while there were many miraculous things that were happening among and through these people that many people referred to as Christians, they called themselves in the early church followers of the way. This makes sense. Why? Because Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? But while there was many great things happening among these Christians, there also began to be much persecution for their faith. And when I say persecution, I'm not talking about that, uh, the kind of persecution Disney boycotters feel or the kind of persecution that Starbucks Red Cup boycotters feel. That's not the kind of persecution. I can't believe they would take Christ out of Christmas. That's not the kind of persecution I'm talking about. Under Emperor Nero, Christians were being persecuted and they were being killed for their faith. And because of this, many Christians fled from their homes in hopes of protecting their lives and the lives of those they love. This sets up the scene for our passage today as we try to continue in this series, Jesus Changes Everything. And today I want to talk about this idea that Jesus changes our hope, that Jesus is our hope. And as we sang today, our living hope. And so, what does Peter have to say about this idea that Jesus is our living hope? And then, like, why does this apply today? And I, I want to warn you, um, we're going to spend a little time in the scripture, and then I'm going to spend a lot of time getting super applicable. In fact, uh, there's going to be a lot of systematic theology, so if you want to grab something to write, if you want to take notes, uh, I, I think you're going to want to, if you're someone who really nerds out on this kind of stuff, we're going to really get into the depths of it today. So this is going to be a little bit more scholastic, but I, I think it's actually helpful and more, and it'll help us put some tangibility to these ideas that we're talking about when we say like, Jesus is our hope. Like, okay, I get that, but what has that really impact the everyday rhythms of our lives? And I'm going to try to give some suggestions to that today. But as we open up to first Peter, what is important to remember is that it was these followers of Jesus who were being scattered among all of the Roman Empire because of the persecution, Peter decided, I needed to write, I needed to send some encouragement to them. And this original disciple of Jesus, one of the early leaders of the church, Peter, wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if you forget to take into account that this letter was written to Christians who were fearing for their very lives 
listening to Peter talk about how Jesus gives us a living hope can sound like motivational rhetoric meant to encourage you to see the world through a half glass full perspective. Like, be encouraged, believer. Jesus is your living hope. But this is not what Peter is trying to communicate here. Peter communicates that a living hope is not found in placing our trust in the possibility that things will get better. I think it's really, really important to understand. Peter was not trying to communicate that hope is found in this possibility that things will get better. Oh, they'll get better for you here on earth. This is why Peter doesn't try to ignore the realities of the hardship they're going through. That's why he says, starting in verse 5, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which through perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter doesn't say, "Um, I get it, you're going through a lot of trial, but take hope. Keep following Jesus. Put your trust in him, and he'll make the realities of this life better. That's not what he says. He doesn't promise that. Instead, Peter says this in verse 13. You skip down, he says this. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What was he talking about there? He's talking about the time that we will see Jesus again in heaven. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. And so, (laughs) to a bunch of people who are being persecuted for their faith, who have not given up faith and are still preaching the gospel, preaching that Jesus has come to forgive people of their sin, that if they would place their faith and trust in him, to believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will be saved. These are the people. They get it. They're not uh, wishy-washy Christians. They're not like, you know, kind of uh, on the fence type of Christians. These are people who are actual followers of Jesus. They're sold out. They're put their lives on the line. And so Peter says to them, he doesn't say to them, hey, keep following Jesus and it'll get better. This is not what he says. Peter instructs the believers instead to place their hope in the fact that God will demonstrate the full extent of his grace when one day they will see Jesus revealed in heaven. This is why (laughs) I I remember growing up, um, I, I grew up in a church with a lot of older followers of Jesus. I don't know if you grew up in a church with like a lot of older followers of Jesus. The church I went to was like, almost 100 years old. So you had a lot of these older followers of Jesus. And uh, I remember one of the things that it just seemed, it seemed like what an older follower of Jesus did, but, and I thought it was more about age, but now as I get older in my faith, I actually realize it's more about maturity in your faith. And they would always say this thing, oh, I can't wait back. I can't wait until, what, I see Jesus again. I can't wait to go to heaven. And then they would sing songs like, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Anyone know that song? When we all see Jesus, well, what? Shout and sing for victory, right? 
all these songs about heaven. Like these old people were just so passionate about heaven. And I was like trying to get Tiffany Baker to like me, you know, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I was just, you know, silly eighth grader. But there's something that they got having been seasoned followers of Jesus because they experienced more turmoil than getting rejected by your eighth grade crush or, you know, having to take out the trash again, like as my young teenage self. I thought, oh, my parents are trying to control me. They're too lazy. They can take it out themselves. It's their trash. After all, they tell me everything in this house is mine. Why can't they take it out themselves? They're so lazy, right? And so Peter instructs them. What does he tell them? He tells them instead that the, instead of like placing your hope that things will get better, like immediately or like, oh, it'll get better. Don't worry. This too shall pass. In some ways that's true. But he says to them, he said, no, place your hope in the fact that one day you're going to see Jesus. I don't know what your life has been like recently. But I would suggest that if it's been hard for you, maybe try to remind yourself like these saints of old have done. That Jesus is someone we will see again. The question is, who are the people who get to experience heaven? That's a good question, though. Does everybody go to heaven? Well, the short answer is no. Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Everyone what? <laughs> Who believes. Vincent Milton, he writes this really good book. It's a very short book. In fact, I recommend it to every person who follows Jesus. It's called A Gospel Primer for Christians. Um, and he says this, God did not give us his gospel just so we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. We preface this series asking the question, how does God change everything? Really, specifically, how does God through Jesus change everything? And how he does that is through the gospel. Through the gospel. And so the question that usually comes after is, well, then how does Jesus change me? Is answered in the same way. Well, it's, I'm changed, you're changed by the power of the gospel. And today, I want to take what theologians refer as a systematic theological approach to talking about how the gospel of Jesus can change our lives. So, Complete transparency. That was the Bible study. We just sat in there. And now, just for a few minutes, I know I don't usually do this, but I just want to camp on this idea of like, how does the gospel change us and take a systematic theological approach to this? And how does God not only make us holy, but how does he turn a holy life into a living hope? For those who've been listening to me teach the Bible over the years, um, for some of you, this, this may seem like Old news, uh, I checked. It actually has been about, actually it's been, it's so weird for me to say this. It's been about six years since I really talked about this in full. 
And so I feel like it's time for us to talk about it again because I think sometimes it's easy to forget. And even though I feel like I keep saying the same things over and over again, I know that there's some things that we just need to remember and be reminded of. And this isn't the kind of news you listen to once and then you're good. In fact, we have to listen to it over. This is the kind of, over and over. This is the kind of news we have to remind ourselves over and over again. And how do I know this? Because, because I have to remind myself over and over again. This, this is something I have to discipline my life to do every single day of my life. And what is that? It's this. It's learning to preach the gospel to myself every single day. Like learning to preach the gospel to your own heart. Before we talk about that, we should set some common language regarding what is the gospel. Because I think if you ask 10 different people on the street, what is the gospel, you'll get 10 different answers. And so for the sake of just at least being on the same page, I want to bring some common language to what is the gospel. If you're more of a scholar in your approach to faith, like I said, you're going to love what, we about, what we're about to uh, look at. So make sure you grab something to write with, take notes. And if you're not, if you're not like really into that kind of stuff, just hold on. At the end here, I'm going to wrap it all together and make it like super practical. So you're like, just tell me what to do, Phil. I don't like taking notes. Just tell me what to do. And we'll get to that part. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We have discussed it (laughs) in really, really many different ways from different perspectives over the years. But all of the presentations of the gospel... Follow the explanation of the scripture's four themes of God's story. This is actually something I teach the high schoolers uh, at every single time we get together every Wednesday. We say, hey, when we look at this passage of scripture, we ask, like, how does this passage of scripture inform us of one of the four themes of scripture, which is this. One, in the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and earth. So creation, then there's the idea of man's sin, and we were separated from God, but then God made a what? Promise. He promised. And then that promise was revealed in Jesus Christ, who by his blood and his sacrifice, he did what to us? He rescued us. And he not only just rescued us from our sin, he restored us. Like, do you understand that Jesus not only canceled the debt, which was given to us, uh, which is which, which is a debt that that made sure we were going to die and, and and we were going to face penalty for our sin. Then he canceled that, but then he didn't just cancel it. He actually restored us into a right relationship with Jesus, with with the Father. Like this is big, this is big, and these four themes tell us more than just the reality of what God has done and what kind of person He is. These four themes also address the realities we face in our everyday lives. And how God desires us to live in ways that are congruent with his standards. And so how do these four themes of God's story reveal how we live our stories? And here's, here's a little classroom. Hopefully you buckle in here for a second. Creation. The theme of creation from the gospel stories deals with the question that we all ask at some time in our life. What is my identity? It deals with our identity. It asks us to consider from the gospel perspective questions like this. What do I assume the world is like and should be like? What kind of person do I think I am and would I like to be? Or what would have to be in place in my life to make me happy? This idea of creation. Then there's separation. I know I'm going through this real quickly. 
In fact, I think back in the day, we did a whole series just on each of these movements of the gospel. So um, if I find those, I, maybe I'll post them somewhere, or, or we'll just spend another series and talk about it in, in detail. But then this idea of separation, the theme of separation deals with the reality of our brokenness in our lives. It deals with the brokenness of our lives and where it comes from, separation. It asks us to consider from a gospel perspective these questions. What are my struggles and battles? Or what do I feel lack? Remember, the temptation in the garden wasn't do what God said not to do. It was this. It was first, hey, God's holding back on you. It discredited God and made Eve and Adam believe that there was something that God was holding back on them and there was something that they lacked, something that they deserved. It also asks us to consider who do I think is responsible for my problems? Remember in the creation story, when found in the garden, God said, Eve, who told you to eat this fruit? And what did Eve say? The snake told me. And then God looked at Adam and said, Adam, why did you eat the fruit? And then what did he say? (laughs) Idiot. And this is like the number one problem most husbands face. I do anyways. He blamed his wife. The woman you gave me. (laughs) And this is like the common issue that I sit down with people in marital counseling all the time. You got to stop doing that. We make the same problems over and over again. We want to blame shift. But then there's this, this theme of promise. The theme of promise deals with what is the solution to our problem or problems. It asks us to consider from a gospel perspective, what do I think will make my life better? Like what provides me with a sense of escape or relief? Who will deliver my hopes and my dreams? Promise. And then rescue and restoration. The theme of rescue and restoration deals with the reality of what it is we are placing our hope in. What are we placing our hope in? It asks us to consider from a gospel perspective, what are the dreams I'm willing to make sacrifices for? Or is my hope so minimal that I only make it, I only live to make it through the day? Like there are some people who are overachievers and then there are some people who are just minimal achievers. Like what can I do just to make it? Or to ask us to consider, what's, what's the long-term goal I am working towards? Jesus would say it this way. Who would trade his, who would, who would, who would, who would trade, who would do everything they can to gain the whole world, but what? Lose their soul. Right? And he talks about how, who doesn't build a house without at least first thinking about it? Or who does not, who does not think first before considering what it means to put their feet towards doing something. And this is the idea of this planning. This is about this rescue and restoration. Jesus was alluding to it in his own teachings. For example, in Genesis 3, the gospel gets reinterpreted by the serpent and turns it into a lie in this way, according to the four themes. And here's got a little bit of a little chart here. Again, I said we're going to get a little, get a little scholastic, but I think as we wrap this together, it'll make sense. The lie about creation that the serpent is able to convince Eve was this, that we are meant to be gods who rule over our own lives and in turn make us believe that our identity is not defined by God, but it's defined by what we do. Right? Uh, I remember, uh, I forget what Batman it is, but um, 
Who's, who's, the guy, who's, the guy, who's the girl that Batman is in love with? It's not Lois Lane. That's Superman. Who's, who is it? Batman. Batman. Who's in love? Rachel? Rachel. Yeah. She looks, at, she looks at Bruce Wayne and says, you know, like, we're, we're defined by not what we, what we intend, but by what we do. Right? And that was like the punchline of that movie. And I remember watching that going, oh. <laughs> I just like, there is the gospel of the world right there. That you were defined by what you do. This is the lie of creation. If you, if you only eat the fruit, if you do, then you will what? Be like God. And the lie about separation that the serpent was able to convince us with is this, that we are held back by God and his insecurities. God is the problem. Remember the story. The serpent said, it won't kill you. In fact, it will make you like God, which is what? Setting seeds of doubt that God has our best interests in mind. And really, the serpent is the first one to cause us to entertain the idea that we are already separated from God. Like before that, Adam and Eve like had union with God and they walked in the garden with him. This idea of like, wait, there's something between us and God that we aren't fully known about? Something that we don't understand? And the serpent was the first one to cause us to come to the idea that Jesus, that, that God cannot be trusted, that he's not 100% into us and dedicated to us. And the serpent establishes that all of our problems start with God and cements this ideology by convincing us that distrust is what motivates the action of our life. I mean, doesn't this sound like the modern-day atheist? What's the problem in this world? It's the religious. We just need to think for ourselves, believe in ourselves, believe that man is consistently getting better, and in that hope that one day we will reach whatever nirvana. And then there's a lie about promise. The lie is that we can be set free from God's from God holding us back by not trusting God, by doubting Him, and by not listening to Him and obeying Him. The lie is that God cannot be trusted, and we can only trust in ourselves. And following these lies leads to a lie regarding our rescue and restoration that makes sense, but in the end is still a lie. Because when we're defined by what we do, believe that God does not have our best end in mind, and that we are the only ones capable of bringing the reality of what we want and desire into our lives, we naturally believe that we will be gods. Our hope for bringing rescue from the power of sin and restoration from the effects of sin is found in us, not God. This is the mantra of the world. If we're going to change the world, it starts with who? You. Smokey the Bear would say, only who can prevent forest fires? You, right? And that's good advice, actually. That's not something I really want to preach against. But this idea that who's the savior of the world? You are. You are. You can make a difference. You can make a change. Sounds like a song. I don't know what it is, but I'll sing it once I remember it. And the only one who can save me 
is me. I am God. Despite each of us buying into Satan's lies and rejecting God's word and rule, God's response to us is this. Because there's a gospel truth. There's, there's Satan's lie, but then there's a gospel truth. The gospel truth to the theme of creation is this. That we actually were created in God's image. This means we are created to love God and reflect God's glory and to love others in return. Our identity is defined by the one who created us. The gospel truth of the theme of separation is this. We have all rebelled against God's rule. Our sin, not God, our sin is the problem. Like when you look at the world around you, it's not because of people. It's because of sin. It is a rebellion against God's rule in our lives and the embracing of a self-rule that leads to conflict, poverty, slavery, death, and judgment. God is not the problem. The political world schemes of this world aren't the problem. The social schemes of this world is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And the gospel truth of the theme of promise is this, that God is the great pursuer of our souls and is the only one who does what is right and what is good. And he alone can be trusted. In other words, God is the solution for the problem of sin. And the amazing thing is that God looks at our blatant rebellion towards him and his standard and says, I, I know you've, you've offended me. and Everything about your life has rebelled against me. But listen to me. I love you so much that I am willing to send my one and only son not just to come and preach a message and point you back to me but to show you my love you don't even know what love is this is love that I have sent my son to die for you so that you could be one with me. The solution we're looking for is found in the promise of God to rescue and restore us. And honestly, all of creation. Because all of creation has been broken by sin. We live in a world that doesn't look as it should. And it's because of sin. The gospel truth through the lens of the theme of rescue and restoration is this. I cannot save myself. The only one who can save me is God. God is the one who rescues us from the penalty of our sins by sending his son. God is the one who graciously enables us to live under his rule by paying the price of our judgment on the cross. God will restore and recreate this broken world for us when King Jesus returns. This is our living hope. Okay, so... I know, <laughs> I know this is diving into more theological thought than some would like to entertain. Maybe on only a couple cups of coffee and hopefully a donut um, on a Sunday morning. So let me try to illustrate. Let me try to illustrate what it would look like to live your life through other gospels. Like how does okay this? How does this apply to our own lives? As I said before, when we are all preaching some type of gospel. Um, as I said before, we are all preaching some type of gospel to ourselves. 
We are all preaching some type of news that proclaims what is good, what is right, and what is true for us. Some of us, for example, uh, live our lives preaching a gospel of image. Um, uh, to explain this, uh, you know, we, we believe that all of our life's decisions come from some form of answering this question. Will this make me look good? Like, we, we preach a gospel that says, I, I need to do whatever makes me look good. And we, we, whether that is about the clothes we wear, how skinny or how toned or how big we are, how our face looks, or this is our reputation. How do people at work think about me? Or maybe this is about your grades. Like, how do my parents think about me? Do they, do they feel proud about me? We all preach this gospel. We struggle to live through, we live our lives through a gospel of image. Some people do this. Some of us live our lives through preaching a gospel of happiness. Maybe that's not you. You're like, oh no, I don't don't care about my image. And some of you, I look at you on a Sunday morning and I'm like, I can tell. I can tell. I'm kidding. That's no one here. But some of you live preaching a gospel of happiness. Happiness determines what choices we make. And happiness drives everything. Like what we desire and value and what does not make us happy becomes eventually our enemy. And some of us live our lives preaching a gospel of control. And if you've heard me talk about this, and I, and I want to illustrate how the gospel of control, like all of their false gospels we preach to ourselves, gives us a false perspective of God's storyline and causes us to live in opposition to God's standards. So here's, here's, here's that go, here how it goes. The gospel of control. Here's how you preach the gospel of control to yourself instead of the gospel as found in the scriptures. And you can probably see how this... Um, would play out. Uh, if you, if you, if you read a lot of theology, especially regarding, um, understanding like how Paul understood and preached and how the early disciples taught this idea of fruits of the spirit, um, the fruit to root, you can, you can Google this fruit to root. Um, uh, you'll, they'll, they'll talk, they'll, they'll talk about this pathway that we, that we look at the gospel through. And this is one of the ways we could look at it through. And so we, we look at what's going on to diagnose what kind of gospel we're preaching to ourselves, And so here's how you preach a gospel of control to yourself instead of the gospel as found in the scriptures. If you're looking at creation, the gospel of control tells me that I am the creator. I shouldn't be in control of my life. And so if you're preaching a gospel of control to yourself, you struggle with the fact that things are just out of control because you feel like your identity is placed in the decisions and the actions of your life and that you should be the master of your own fate. Like, you should be better. Like, things shouldn't be so out of control. Don't you know? You're not supposed to be this out of control. Things should be better. And the gospel of control tells me through this lens of separation that the problem in my life has to, um, the problem in my life have to do with things out of control. It's because of other people or situations prevent me from being in control or ruining my life because Lord forbid that it's actually my fault that things are out of our control. Like I've never heard someone come to me and goes, Phil, can I get together with the coffee? Sure. And they never, they never sit down and go like, my life is just spinning out of control. And like, why is it spinning out of control? And I just sounded like Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, I just, it's spinning out of control. Why is it spinning out of control? Because it's me. No one, no one ever says it. it's me. I'm the problem. You know, it's not like Taylor Swift. What, what do they say? It's because of everybody else. It's because of other people. It's because of my circumstances. If you only knew. 
And the gospel of control tells me that in order to solve the problems of my life, I should either avoid situations which I cannot control, as well as people who challenge my rule. In fact, that sounds like a lot of the advice you probably get from some of your coworkers or some of your friends. Well, you just ignore those people. Get out of that situation. Quit that job. Leave your husband. Leave your wife. The solution to be freed from being controlled. The, the solution is to be freed from being controlled or objected. Like this promise that you're looking for is found by being freed or being controlled or objected. Rescue and restoration. The gospel of control tells me that my hope, my preferred future that motivates all my current decisions and actions is found in working towards creating a life where my control is never challenged or taken away. And even as I say that, some of you are like, that sounds like a pretty good life. <laughs> and why does that sound like a pretty good life to you? Because we all battle with this, this, this false gospel narrative that's wanting to be preached to us by the world and that because of our sin nature, we're so willing to buy into And this gospel control tells us that I'm responsible to rescue me from the man. Only I can restore power that is being taken away from me. So then, how does the gospel of God inform us when we realize that we've been preaching this gospel of control to ourselves? Well, when we live out God's storyline, then God's good news response to each person struggling with control looks like this. First, it's like this. Give me just a few more minutes. I'm so sorry. We're over, but... Creation looks like, the, the idea of creation looks like this. The gospel is found in the scripture tells us that God is the creator. He has established our identity. And we find our freedom in knowing God is in control. And we are not. Separation. The gospel of God lets us know that the problem is not outside of us, but it starts with us. We rejected God's rule in favor of taking control of our lives for ourselves. James, the brother of Jesus, would say, why are there troubles and strifes and arguments among you? What is the source of all these problems? It's because you want, but you cannot have. And you don't even ask God who can give it to you. And then even when you do ask, (laughs) you do it with the wrong heart. But then we have to look to this promise. That solution the gospel offers us from this gospel of control is that God welcomes us back under his rule by promising and giving us Jesus and his humble sacrifice on the cross. And that we can trust God. Like the storyline of the promise is this, that if there's anyone who could be accused of being the least in control, it would be God who was seeing his one and only son being beaten for crimes he didn't commit and crucified for claims that were absolutely true. He was out of control. But on the other side of the cross, we knew that God was completely in control. He knew what he was doing. He could be trusted. And rescue and restoration tells us that the true gospel establishes that our hope, the preferred future will shape our current reality, is this, that God will restore things as it should be. God will restore us as it should be. This is what Peter was talking about. This is our hope, that one day we will see heaven, and we will be with Jesus, and there will be no tears, there will be no sickness, 
There'll be no more death. Praise the Lord. And his rule over all the world when King Jesus returns will be one where we experience freedom from the brokenness of sin and a reality that our current life longs for. Now, make no mistake, committing to increasingly learning to recalibrate your everyday rhythms through the lens of the gospel requires some discipline. And I hope this is a little bit of help of how we can think through it. And as we go through this series, I'm going to try to offer some other ways for us to kind of practically look at our lives through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that it can change everything. I think for many years, people go to church and they hear, believe in Jesus and he'll change everything. I'm like, okay, I believe in Jesus. But then like, how does that actually help? Well, you have to get, you know, join our class and, and serve and that's how God will change you, whatever. But there's a recalibration that needs to happen. And over the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about that. I want to allow this pulpit to help us think through the realities of what Jesus has done very deeply so that it can not only inform our minds, but also hopefully inform our hearts. And the good news is that learning to recalibrate your everyday rhythms through the lens of the gospel is something you don't have to do alone. If you've submitted your life to Jesus, then you have God's spirit. Like, if this seems hard, just know that God's Spirit is there to help you. And second of all, He's actually given you a spiritual family. And this is what I think most people forget. He's given you a spiritual family whose role it is, as Ephesians tells us, is to build you up and equip you. If you feel like you have not been equipped and built up, not only in this idea of ministry, but having a living hope, living hope. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you engaged in spiritual community? I'm not talking about going bowling with Christians. That's not... I mean, community where you talk about the scriptures and then are held accountable to that. But before we do all that, the first question you have to ask yourself is this. What is the one area of your life this week that you want to gain a more gospel perspective on? This, this is the question I really just want you to ask this week. What is the one area of your life that you want to gain more of a gospel perspective on? Like, what is the one area that you feel like is just overwhelming your life? Maybe it's a relationship, a job, maybe it's your identity. Maybe it's a personal struggle or sin. And if you can't find something that you think needs more of a gospel perspective, here's what you can do. Ask someone close to you that loves Jesus and isn't afraid to tell you the truth. They'll tell you. Oh, well, you know, probably need to. And if you don't have someone like that, because I know some of you may feel like that, well then, get in community with people Start being transparent. Start being vulnerable. And let's see God, who sent his son Jesus to die for us, not only change everything, but specifically change us.